It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. That is what the famous atheist Richard Dawkins said in the midst of a debate over the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. In Richard Dawkins' eyes, and the eyes of so many in our world, the gospel that we believe, the good news that Jesus, as Lord and Savior, has conquered death, it's seen as a message of weakness. Dawkins says, look at how great the cosmos is in which we live. If there's really a a supreme being behind it all, do you really think he's interested in the speck of dust that we call planet Earth? Or us, mankind, a single species amongst many in our own tiny corner of the universe? Dawkins says it's so weak, it's so petty, it's so trivial believing in Jesus as Lord. And I'm sure there have been times in the past when we have faced this kind of scorn personally as Christians. You're sharing Jesus with a friend or a family member only for them to politely dismiss you or maybe even laugh out loud in your face. You believe that? Seriously? Jesus? Saviour? King? Back at university, I joined the Army Officer Training Corps. It's a club that's set up by the British Army uh, for students who are studying in the UK to get a taste of uh, life in the military. Maybe they'll become an officer uh, after they graduate. Uh, But to get into this club, the Officer Training Corps, you have to go away for a, a weekend assessment. And so they took us away to this army barracks in the middle of nowhere, uh, and they tested us on a few different levels. We were tested physically, uh, had to do these horrible things like climb a 10-foot wall. That wasn't fun. We were tested mentally. We were given these little quizzes to see do we actually have any common sense whatsoever before they give us a gun. Uh, And then finally, they tested your skills as a leader. Can you explain something to a group of people that you don't really know that well? Uh, And so what they decided to do is they they asked each of us, pick three random topics that you know something about. Uh, And when the time came, our drill sergeant chose one of any three topics, we don't know which one it would be, chose one of those three topics, and on the spot we had to get up in front of these guys we didn't really know and speak about it for five minutes. And so he asked me, Tim, what are your three topics? What do you want to speak about? And with some hesitation, I told him, okay, I'll talk about cinema, computing, and Christianity. Soon enough, it was my turn to get up and speak before this group of guys I didn't know well at all. And wouldn't you know it, out of all the three topics that I chose, the drill sergeant yelled, Tim, tell us about Christianity. And as soon as these guys heard that, found out that for the next five minutes, I was going to talk about Jesus, well, half of them just switched off straight away. Heads fell on the desk, eyes starting to roll, one of them looking a little bit angry, and this was before I'd even opened my mouth. I'd said anything. 
And I wondered to myself in that moment, why on earth was this a good idea? I look like a fool. I'm trying to share the, the good news, the gospel, with these guys, and they're already telling me in their body language they just don't want to know. And isn't that one of the reasons why we so often hold back as Christians? We have the opportunity to share the gospel with, with a friend or a family member, but we don't because we are so afraid that they are just going to dismiss us as weak and foolish believers. I've been there. And I imagine you have if you're a Christian here this morning. And my hope is as we look at this psalm, it will be a great encouragement for us who know what it is like to feel so weak and appear so weak before others as we seek to serve Christ and so share his gospel and love. Here we have David the king of God's people, Israel, praising God for his majesty, his greatness, his sovereignty over all things. You see how Psalm 8 begins and ends? It begins and ends the same way. Verse 1, verse 9, we have this same wonderful line of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But what David is going to drive home to us here in Psalm 8 is that the Lord delights to reveal the majesty of his name, how great he really is, through the weakest of means. The Lord delights to reveal the majesty of his name through the weakest of means. Let's start with David's praise in verse 1. To open up again at Psalm 8. We see God's majesty in and over all. So David begins in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice how, how David just starts addressing God in the first place here. Uh, o Lord, and you see that's in capital letters, L-O-R-D. And whenever we see the Lord in capitals in our Bibles, it, it means that his personal name, Yahweh, is being invoked. David isn't praising some distant deity that he doesn't know here. He's praising the God who has made himself known to David as Yahweh, the God of David and his people. You remember back in Exodus? God called Moses through the burning bush, and, and he told Moses to go and, and to be his mediator to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and Moses came up with a series of excuses not to go, and one of them was, I don't know your name, Lord. What name shall I go and tell your people so that they can know it is you? And that is the first place in Exodus 3 where the Lord gives his personal name, Yahweh. Uh, the long form, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Israel would know Yahweh as their God on the basis of his unchanging character, his perfect faithfulness in all things. And now David praises Yahweh as his true master in all things. O Lord, our Lord. But see what David then says about God's name. How majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You see, David knew Yahweh, his Lord, was not simply the God of him or the God of his people Israel. He had chosen Israel out of all the nations, though in fairness all of them belonged to him, so that Israel might be a sign to them of how good, how great he is. But David doesn't even stop there. Yahweh isn't simply the God of all the earth. See in the second part of verse 1? You have set your glory above the heavens. The God who David knows as Yahweh reigns over all that has been made, that the heavens above, what we see above our skies, outer space. Uh, David looks up at the night sky, much like if we we're in the Cameron Highlands. Can't do it here with the light pollution, but here we go out to the Cameron Highlands. You go out at night and you just look up and you see the most amazing display, don't you? These brilliant, tiny, piercing white lights against the pitch-black darkness of space. And David says, know that the Lord has set his glory above that. He rules over everything that you can see and more. And now given how David describes God's majesty here in those terms, ruler over all the earth, king of the heavens above, how would you expect this God in his majesty to show forth his strength in our world? To remind our world he is in charge. Especially as tragically our world rebels against him and his good purposes. Well, let's just think about what a great earthly ruler would do. Let's think about that. Uh, when the other nations step out of line, what do earthly rulers do? We have the President of the United States. He is arguably the most powerful earthly governor on the planet right now. How does he show forth his might when the nations step out of line? Well, with the support of his Congress, he uses the mightiness of his armed forces. North Korea, as we saw again in the news this week, it continues to break every sanction that the UN has laid down in its persistence to become a nuclear power, test after test after test. And so what is being done in response? Well, the president has ordered his mighty navy to step up their drills in the South China Sea, a great show of military force. And of course, we're all hoping for a peaceful resolution that North Korea do back down in the end, they relent. But just in case diplomacy fails, the full might of the American Navy is on display for them to see. That's what our world thinks of when it comes to majestic rule, majestic power, real authority flexing its muscles, mighty armies, world leaders using all the resources at their command to get their way. Well, now see what David says. How does the God of all creation show forth his might in our world? How does he deal with his enemies? Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babies and infants... God's majesty established through weakness. Isn't that incredible? David praises God here for using the mouths, the words of infants to establish his strength to deal with his enemies. Can you imagine Donald Trump, right? 
He's in the Oval Office, and he calls all of his generals in and, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he says, I've got this great, great new plan for North Korea, great new strategy. Forget the ships. Forget the bombers. Forget the Navy SEALs. If diplomacy fails, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send in the babies. <laughs> yeah, that's right, the babies. That'll teach them. We'll humble North Korea by the screams of American infants. I mean, it is Donald Trump, but still. <laughs> that would still be shocking, wouldn't it? We're going to deal with them through infants. We should feel the shock of what David praises God for here. He uses the weakest of means to show forth his might out of the mouth of babies. I mean, you can't get any weaker than that. My baby daughter, Bethany, 14 months old now. Oh, she can scream pretty loud. I was reminded of that this morning. She can't do anything for herself, really. She certainly can't overpower anyone. But David knows that God working through the very weakest of means, that's been his own experience as God's king for his people. You remember who David was? He was the shepherd boy. He was the youngest of all his brothers, and yet he was God's chosen instrument to deliver Israel from their most feared enemy of the time, the Philistines. I'm sure we know the story, David and Goliath. That giant of a man, a hardened, experienced soldier, and King Saul could see when the shepherd boy came into his tent, I will fight Goliath. He saw how feeble David was. He said, well, then at least wear my armor the royal armor. Maybe you'll stand half a chance. And David tried it on. It didn't even fit. He couldn't wear it. And even with or without the armor, there's still no way David could defeat Goliath in his own power. You see what he says when he approaches this great enemy on the battlefield. 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And so despite all the odds, humanly speaking, the Lord did deliver Goliath into David's hand. God used the weakest of means to deal with that great enemy. Why? So there would be no question about it. The victory is the Lord's. <coughs> it's His sovereign hand at work that He might be glorified as the true deliverer of His people. And later in the Gospels, we see this same praise that David has here in verse 2, only this time it's on the lips of Jesus as God's King. He's just been challenged by the religious powerhouse of the day, the Pharisees, uh, having just shown his authority in clearing the temple, driving out those who were preventing others from coming to God in prayer. And we're told, Matthew 21, 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? 
And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. God again, using weak little children to set his enemies straight. As they praise Jesus as King, these children show they know better than all of these religious leaders in their wisdom and their knowledge, who wanted nothing more than to kill Jesus, God's Son, and yet they were prevented by the mouths of children. And David just stands in awe of this great mystery. God uses the weakest of means to establish his might. He, he takes us back to the beginning, the very beginning. And he shows us that this great mystery has actually been at the heart of God's will for everything from the beginning. See, God's majesty is established through the weakness of man whom he has made. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Now, my son Josiah, to my great dismay, is becoming a massive fan of YouTube, especially those cartoons that try to explain some of the more weird and wonderful facts about our world. And some of them are very weird. Uh, his favorite one right now involves deep-sea squids and zombie worms that feed on the bones of decaying fish. There's an example. But one of these cartoons is called The Universe is Way Bigger Than You Think. Okay, the universe is way bigger than you think, and it blew my mind. It blew my mind when I watched it for the umpteenth time with him. Here's what I learned. The Voyager 1 spacecraft, uh, which launched all the way back in 1977, it is still hurling away from us, from planet Earth, at around 17 kilometers per second. Okay, that's 61,200 kilometers an hour. And after 35 years, traveling at that colossal speed, it finally crossed over the interstellar boundary of our solar system back in August 2013. Now, the closest neighboring star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is just over four light years away. It means that if Voyager were to take a direct route, it, at its current speed, it would still take more than 30,000 years to reach that star. And that's just the closest star, just over four light years away. If you zoom out, and the video zooms out, it shows us the galaxy as we know it, the Milky Way. And it's suspected that the galaxy, the Milky Way, of which we are a tiny part, it measures from one end to the other 100,000 light years. 100,000 light years. The universe is way bigger than you think. And David refers to it here as the work of God's fingers. As he set the moon and the stars in place, those awesome celestial bodies, billions of miles apart, God's finger work. It's no harder for him to do than it is for us to use our fingers to send a text message or write a letter. And given the sheer expanse of everything that God has made, the little part that we can actually see of it from here, David asks a very reasonable question in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? 
How could a God of this kind of awesome majesty give us creatures all the way down here a second thought? And the word that David uses here for man, what is man, that you are mindful of him in verse 4, it, it, it emphasizes our frailty. It's frail man, our lowliness as creatures. What is frail man that you are mindful of him? We are nothing, nothing like God. The planets spin because he deems it so as he rules above the heavens. Dependent on no one, nothing. David here refers to us as the son of man. Those who are born and in our infancy, we're totally dependent on others, aren't we? To simply live, to simply eat and drink, and so live for another day. And yet God is mindful of us. Are you mindful of the ants in your back garden right now? You're scurrying around under the dirt, building their homes, busy, busy ants. I'm not mindful of the ants in my back garden. I don't give them a second thought. And yet the chasm between God and us in our loneliness is so much greater than that which is between us and an ant. And it's on that basis that agnostics say we could never hope to know God. Even if he's out there, there's no way you could know a being of this kind of glory and majesty. He's just too mighty. He's too far above us in every way. Relationship with him? And David marvels here because they're wrong. Because God cares greatly for us as mankind whom he has made in all our frailty, in all our weakness. Not only is God mindful of us, he has bestowed on us great glory and honor. Verse 5. See what he says of mankind? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That's what God intended in the beginning. As he first spoke to our four parents, Adam and Eve, he set them apart as mankind from the rest of his creation and, and made them stewards over all his world. Gave us dominion over the works of his hands that we might reflect something of his majestic rule. Verse 6b, you have put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the seas. That was God's intention for humanity, made in His image, to look after this world and rule it in right relationship with Him. But that's not the world we know today, is it? David says here, you have put all things under His feet. I mean, we as mankind, there's no doubt we're at the top of the food chain. We do dominate this world, tragically in the most abusive of ways at times. But a world that is under our feet in the sense that it submits to our will, it submits to our rule. What about those who lost their lives in the wildfires in southern France just this last week? Or the thousand killed in earthquakes and tsunamis and all the other kinds of natural disasters so far, even this year. You've put all things under our feet. You know, it's so different from the world that we know and live in today, isn't it? 
And we only need to read past Genesis 2 to see why. To see what we have done, having been bestowed such glory and honor by God who made us, that rather than seeking to love and honor and worship Him as our God and, and rule His creation rightly under Him, we seek to glorify ourselves away from Him. We, we deny God His right and good rule over us. I know I've done that. We say, thanks, God, but, but no thanks. We'll enjoy this world you've created, but you can get lost. We'll be the rulers of our own lives, and our world was never meant to run that way. As we fell in our sin, so our world fell with us. It's not a safe place anymore. Oh, it still bears much beauty and wonder, but it is full of danger and sorrow as well. And so does, does David's praise here, does it still hold any currency for us today? Can we still sing this psalm of praise, given the state of our world? Wonderfully, we can. You see, David's praise here, it doesn't simply concern what has been lost in Eden, but how God has worked to restore that which we broke in our sin. And not through a mighty judgment, mind you, and not the force of great armies, but his lowly servant king. That is how God has worked to restore all things, by his lowly servant king, who we as humanity did not esteem. God's majesty established through the weak son of man. I mean, David is praising God here in this psalm because he's using a mere man like him as king to show forth his strength to the world. But this praise in this psalm, it foreshadows God's true king for us all, who was for a little time made lower than the angels, despite the fact that this king that the psalm points forward to was not just a human king, but the Lord and God of all, God, come to us in the person of his son who willingly humbled himself, who took on the role of a servant, born into our world, taking on the weakness of human flesh. And Jesus didn't even receive a royal welcome, did he? The King of kings, Lord of the heavens, born into a manger, a feeding trough for animals, no room in the inn for King Jesus. God worked through the lowliness of his Son made man, the true Son of man to show forth his might, to reestablish his rightful majesty over all the world that would otherwise seek to rebel against him in sin. And we see that most clearly not in Jesus' humble birth, but in his sacrificial death, as he humbled himself even unto death on a cross. That's what it meant for Jesus to be your king and mine. He wore a crown of thorns, his robe stripped from him as he was beaten, though he was innocent. And in that very moment of apparent weakness, God worked to reconcile everything, including us to himself as Jesus bore our sin on the tree. My sin and yours in his body, that we might escape it, and that we might in Christ have the promise of forgiveness 
of new life in a far greater kingdom to come where all things will be restored, where sin and death will no longer reign. And we know that's true. That God prevailed through the weakness of the cross because that weakness, that death could not hold Jesus. God exalted his servant king. He rose never to die again. That's a picture of the new life that is ours in him, as we read in Hebrews 2 for our New Testament reading earlier. And David's praise here honors Jesus as Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we have been speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that's Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him... For a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How has God worked to show forth his majesty, his strength? How has he silenced the enemy and the avenger? He's done so through the lowliness of his son who gave himself up even to death, and by doing so tasted death for us all, that we might escape it. And we still wait for the day when we will see all things in subjection to him, and that day will come. When every tongue confesses Jesus, Lord, when every knee must bow before him, and my prayer is that we here this morning, we will be rejoicing in Jesus as our Lord, whom we have depended on, whom we have rejoiced in. We won't be amongst those who are wailing on that day, who are facing condemnation for rejecting Jesus as God's true King and Savior for us. But for those of us who have trusted in Him, by God's grace, we will be exalted by Him. As all creation is restored under God in every day and in every way, and Christ His King is back on the throne where He belongs. All achieved through the weakness of His death for our sakes. Two implications for us to think about. Firstly, friends, be warned. God uses weakness to make known his majesty. Our Lord Jesus, who gave himself up to death, appeared so weak, and that was God's means to reconcile all creation to himself, bring all, including us, back to God. And as we still wait for the day of his return, we as his people will appear weak as well. As we hold him out to a world that is still perishing, the message of the cross is seen as folly by those who are perishing. Remember Richard Dawkins, his words on the resurrection, it's so petty, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe in which we live. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, The cross says sin is serious and our world refuses to face up to it. The cross says we cannot save ourselves and our world wants to think that it can. The cross says we must depend on God's king, God's suffering servant king for life. And that is a deeply offensive truth to the pride of man's heart. As so many in our world seek to make a name for themselves away from God. And when we as his people 
fear, the scorn of our family, the scorn of our friends, our neighbors, when we're, we're tempted to just water down that message, that offensive message of the cross. Oh, I'm just going to shut up about it. I'm just going to talk less about it. I'm just going to play down Jesus and his death for our sins. When you're tempted to do that, remember God delights to work through that which appears weak. It's what glorifies Him. The world cannot know Him by its own supposedly great but fallen wisdom. But only by the apparent weakness of His glorious gospel. And that is why a four-year-old child who believes the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is wiser than the most accomplished philosopher who still says Jesus is not king. Let's be faithful in proclaiming him and his cross, trusting that that is God's power to save, no matter how weak it might appear for the moment. But secondly, friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged because God uses weakness to make known His majesty. You know, maybe right now you're feeling really weak and frustrated as a Christian. You're seeking to to love God and your neighbor as you should, as you delight in Christ as Lord, but things are just getting harder and harder and harder right now, and you don't know why. Why is it so hard? If I'm doing what I should be doing, if God's behind me and I'm doing His will and I'm serving Christ, Uh, and I'm sharing this gospel, why is it so hard at times? Right now I know a couple of our own church members and they have been working tirelessly in love for their neighbor. They're assisting a mother who delivered her twins at 28 weeks and is unable to care for them long term. And these kids were for, for some time at risk of being sold and trafficked away. They've been working hard to prevent that, these church members, but the barriers that they've faced have been incredible, far more than they expected. Financial costs mounting, the paperwork complex and overwhelming at times. The lack of support from those who are officially meant to be involved, so demoralizing. And yet in the midst of their weakness through many sighs and tears, God has worked to establish his might to show forth his strength. And those twins, praise God, are now safe. They're in a home with godly parents who love them and who will bring them up to know and fear the Lord. But that journey for those church members is still not over yet. They are fighting daily to keep those children safe. And they feel weak and so ill-equipped. They're tired. They're frustrated, and at times it seems hopeless. And yet one of them told me the other day, when I feel hopeless, I remember Christ. And I remember there is always hope with Him. Be encouraged, friends. God delights to work through weakness to make known His majesty. He can and will use us in all our frailty on the most feeble of our days when we are really struggling to show forth His glory through the words and the deeds of us, His weak and feeble servants, as as we live out and as we share this life-giving Word. That is how the God of all creation delights to work. 
That is how the God of all creation delights to release sinners from Satan's grip, to bring lost souls out of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son, the kingdom that will never fade away, all to the glory of his name. For what other God could work like this through people like me and like you? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are Lord, that your name is majestic throughout the earth, your glory set above the heavens we cannot begin to understand how great you are in your majesty. And so it is so amazing that you have bestowed glory and honor on us as mankind. And despite the ways in which we have treated you, you have gone further to redeem us by the blood of your Son, crushed in weakness for our sakes, that we might be forgiven our every sin, that we might have the hope of life, of being part of His kingdom, where all things will be restored. And I pray for each and every one of us this morning, whatever we are facing right now, whatever we may be facing in the future, when we are feeling truly weak and tired, that we would be mindful of this psalm, we would be mindful of the fact that you are the God of all creation who delights to work through the weakest of means to bring glory to your name. Commit us into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.